Somebody commented the other day about the series I do. Um, it's kind of like, you know, kind of like, where do they come from? Well, here's, a, here's an example. So I, um, and that screen, that slides off. Sometimes they don't fit on one screen the way they do the others. But it's funny, I was going to do just a couple of messages before we start a new series in two weeks. And so we're going to do communion next Sunday um, and uh, do another psalm. And so as I was putting this together, I thought, well, how can I kind of encapsulate this these next couple of weeks? And so I thought, well, this, here's a good, the story behind, the stories behind the Psalms. And then last night I'm thinking, man, this would be a great series. <laughs> so, so where do they come from? They just, uh, you know, God just kind of says, here's a good idea for a series. And uh, fascinating because we're going to look at a, a, at a Psalm today and then look at the story behind that Psalm. And it's, it's a pretty beautiful thing to stop and think anyway. about. So, you know, all the books in the Bible, of all the books in the Bible, the Psalms may actually feel as if they are the most personal, right? When you think about the, the Psalms, there's something about them that is different. I'm kind of paraphrasing a phrase I heard yesterday, but it's kind of like the Psalms are our stories. Now, we did not write them like David wrote them, or Moses wrote them, or maybe Solomon wrote a Psalm or two, I'm not sure, the Sons of Korah, the Levitical uh, praise team for the, for the uh, Jews, they wrote a handful of the Psalms. Um, but the reality is they are our stories, right? The Psalms are our stories because they express our emotions, they reveal our thoughts, they ask our questions. And yet at the same time, while we can say, well, that's my story, it's like we can relate to it. The, the reality is, and let me jump ahead here on the screen, um, while they're very relatable and we do like claim, can claim them as our stories, they really are, to be honest, they really are someone else's story, like a lot of the Psalms, not, maybe not all of them, but, but a lot of the Psalms, there's a story behind them of some individual, what David was going through when he was running from Saul, maybe the Psalms that kind of foreshadow how Christ felt when he went to the cross, there's Psalms that certainly do that, and then there are Psalms like this morning when King Hezekiah is just going to describe you know, his emotions and what he experienced when God came through with a great victory for him. Now, um, I'm going with the consensus this morning that this psalm relates back to uh, King Hezekiah and his events with, with King Sennacherib. Uh, some, some see this, uh, a few see this and put this with a different king and a different war, but the consensus seems to be that this goes back to 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19, and this really is a powerful story that speaks once again to the power of a faithful God. Now, some context to help us out. At this time, we talk about King Hezekiah. He is the king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom, and then there's the northern kingdom, and they, the kingdom is split. The Jews have split into two kingdoms at this time. This is the smaller kingdom of Judah. And Hezekiah is the king. And, and listen to the testimony here as we start out of Hezekiah. And, and just here's the verse kind of that, that, that I just mentioned earlier and he read it. Psalms 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And that's one of the most comforting psalms. And that's just right at the very end of this psalm we look at today. That's really where we're driving to. That's kind of the end of the message in advance, but look at here at the testimony, the reputation of King Hezekiah, what the Bible says about him, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. And so he, of all the kings of Judah, 
He's the one that stands out. There was no king of Judah that could compare to him before or after him. What a testimony of the, of the great faithfulness and the great trust of uh, king hezekiah look at that last line though in verse 7 he rebelled against the king of assyria and would not serve him and that's where this story comes in who's the king of assyria it's it's sennacherib it's king sennacherib the year was 720 bc and sennacherib and the assyrian army defeated samaria which is the capital of the northern kingdom of, of the jews the uh, the kingdom of israel and he, he conquers Samaria, takes a lot of its inhabitants back to live in his hometown, uh, back in his country. And he had pretty much had wiped out, I'm guessing, most of Israel because when you conquer the, the capital, that's kind of like the, the icing on the cake. That's what you... And so now we see here, look, look what it says here, 10 years later, 14 years into the reign of King Hezekiah. Look here what happens. Sennacherib comes along and in, in we got this great threat here. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And so Sennacherib is moving now on the southern kingdom of Judah and uh, he is taking down their cities, those fortified cities. I would say those ones that are probably helping defend the capital of Judah, which is Jerusalem. Now, uh, this takes us to about 19 years after he has taken over reign of his kingship here. And this may be the weakest point of his reign, the, the, the decisions that come next. But what he does next is he decides that he's going to attempt to appease Sennacherib, and so he pays him off. He, he, he drains the, the treasury of Judah, and he strips all the gold and silver out of the temple and gives it to Sennacherib to kind of stop Sennacherib in this great threat hoping to appease him. And of course, that does not work. It didn't make them any safer. It just made them a lot poorer. Really, that's all it did. Sennacherib is still coming to take Jerusalem and he's still uh, echoing out his threats. And so after paying Sennacherib off in a somewhat failed alliance with Egypt, Hezekiah turns to the only place he knows, the only one who can truly help the nation of Judah. Hezekiah turns to the Lord. Now at first, he goes to the prophet Isaiah and, and takes his, his, uh, his, his uh, concerns to Isaiah and, and asks Isaiah to take them to the Lord. And Isaiah comes back and says, hey, God's going to deliver you. God's going to protect Jerusalem. You'll be okay. Don't worry. And initially, it seems like that's what's happening. Like the, the, the army starts to retreat. It's like, oh, good thing, things are going to work out. But then, no, Sennacherib steps up and doubles down on his threat and sends a demanding letter to uh, Hezekiah. And this is when something really beautiful unfolds because then Hezekiah takes this letter and this time Hezekiah goes directly into the temple, not into the Holy of Holies, he's not allowed in there, but he goes into the temple, into the outer court there and he lays this letter out before the Lord and he, he gives this great prayer. Let's listen to his prayer. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us. Please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. 
Again, Isaiah comes back to, to, to Hezekiah and says, hey, it's going to be okay, and God's going to cause the armies to re- retreat, and he, he's going to defeat your enemy for you and take out Sennacherib for you. Just have faith. And, and that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when, and when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And, he, and as he was worshiping in the house of uh, Nisrosh, his god, uh, his two sons struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. What a great story. And that takes us all the way then to Psalms 46. And this is really Hezekiah's praise. We don't know who wrote the psalm. It could have been written by Hezekiah, could have been written by Isaiah, could have been written by the sons of Korah themselves. Maybe the sons of Korah just took this letter and and they attributed it and put it into the book of Psalms. We don't know exactly who wrote it, but most believe the consensus is this this Psalm 46 is a response to this great great uh, military conquest of how God delivered them. In fact, Psalms 46, 47, and 48 are seen as a trilogy of psalms that relate back to this very event. And of course, maybe you're aware, Psalms 46, it's really fascinating because that last verse, be still and know that I am God, there's like this, there isn't, isn't there that hymn, how does that hymn go? Uh, be still and know that I am God, right? There's, I can't remember how it actually goes now, it lost, escaped my mind, but I think that's the name of the hymn, be still. Um, and then there is uh, the other great hymn that is based off this very psalm by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and it's based off of Psalms 46. What a great psalm. It's, it's poetic. It's in some ways prophetic. It's beautiful, powerful, and personal, and it is, is as much our story as it is Hezekiah's story this morning, and that's why we're going to look at it. Because today it is clear we are under a severe spiritual attack as the battle rages on and grows more and more intense. Here is what we need to keep in mind. Today we are in this spiritual battle and we are under a very severe spiritual attack. We can see it all around us. It does not escape us. All right. I should have clicked ahead here. Um... Just a note here, I was thinking about this. You know, not every trial and trouble we face is a spiritual attack from Satan. You know, it's like we go through things. Not everything is a spiritual attack from Satan, but here's the truth, that when we are going through a trial or through adversity, when we are maybe most vulnerable, that is when Satan is most likely to attack us, right? Like we just go through life and we face adversity and we face circumstances in life. It doesn't mean God, Satan's necessarily attacking us, but when we are most vulnerable, that's when Satan will swoop in and will try to attack us and we need to be aware of that. Here's today's big idea. I don't need to retreat from the battle. I need a retreat in the battle. And that'll make more sense in just a few moments as we unpack this psalm. I don't need to retreat from the battle. I need a retreat in the battle the battle and so today what to know when the enemy attacks four simple lessons and four applications psalms 46 1 god is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble and then this is the refrain that's included in the psalm the lord of hosts is with us the god of jacob is our fortress selah verse 7 and 11 and here's the simple reality when you do we just need to know god is present with us first lesson god is present with us whatever you're going through whatever you're facing whatever you're enduring god is present with us and it's tough when we process all the evil around us it is easy to lose sight of god right 
In times of trouble, it is easy to question the nearness of God. Like, God, are you really near? God, are you really close? It's like, I don't understand. And the questions that the psalmist so often raise come me immediately to, to mind, right? Those, those questions of lament. How long, O oh God? Why do you stand so far off? Why are you so silent? Why have you forsaken me? Where is your glory? In a world riddled with evil and sin and seemingly in despair, it's easy to question the nearness of God. And is this not one of the main objections of the atheist, right? right? One of the main objections of the atheist is right here. It's the evil quotient. Like, their, their theory is like, well, if God is so near and God is so loving and God is so good, why does he allow such evil in the world? Right? That's their, that's their question. And it's easy to ask that question and it can maybe trap us and we're like, well, I don't know. But the truth is, this, this question that the atheists throw out actually traps them in their own words. You can like turn this around on them, right? Because here's what you can say if they ever, if they ever present this to you, if someone presents this to you, here's what you say. Well, here's, here's the reality. Without God, how would we know anything is evil? How do we know anything's evil? Because we know there's God. We know what is right. We know what is pure, what is beautiful and lovely and true. So that's how we know what is evil. And so that question can kind of trap them in their own words but it is tough sometimes we wrestle with the nearness of God as we are faced with the evilness of man and so the psalmist reminds us immediately that God is present with us the refrain again there's this refrain the Lord of hosts is with us the God of Jacob is our fortress Selah Actually, the expositor's Bible commentary actually says that this should have been included after verse 3, like it was in there and somehow it got taken out because it should be 1, 2, 3 and the refrain and then verses 4, 5, 6 and the refrain and verses 7, or 1, 2, however, it would be um, 1 through 3 and the refrain, 5 through 7 and the refrain and 9 through 11 would be the refrain, just like a song, that's what it was. And so they argue that it should actually be included after verse 3 and it somehow got taken out. The, the reality is he is with us even when we don't feel him with us. And it's one thing to talk about like the present, that God is present and that God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, but it's another thing when we don't feel his presence maybe in our life and and that and, and that's where our faith comes in again right i feel like i've said this a lot this year uh, said this a lot this last year especially going back to the very first series we did to kick off the year like there's this thing about our faith that our faith is not based on our feelings is it our faith is based on god's faithfulness like that's why i have faith because god is faithful i don't have faith because of my feelings i don't have faith because of my circumstances i don't have faith because i am faithful i have faith because god is Faithful, his, God, his faithfulness is what drives my faith, which is, even, which is why even when God does not feel present, we can rest assured that he is present. Where does this leave us then? Here's the first of four simple applications today. Even when God doesn't feel near, I can trust him. Even when God doesn't feel, feel near, I can trust him. I, I can trust that he's present. I can trust that he is right there. So how great is that? And the truth is, sometimes when God doesn't feel near, maybe we're responsible for kind of crowding him out of our life. Maybe there's too much fear, too many emotions, too many thoughts, too many activities, too many of our own stuff that we're crowding him out of our life. 
The Amundsen Scott South Pole Station sits upon two miles of glacial ice at the bottom of the world. It is one of the remotest places on the planet, more than 800 miles from the nearest human beings. A small group of 50 to 150 people gather here to support scientific research done by the United States Antarctic Program. Brett Badorf is one of them, commissioned as a missionary to the others. Badorf expected to find that the silence and solitude of the South Pole would deeply rattle his connection with Christ. Instead, he discovered what he now calls the blessings of solitude. I should have known better. Christ frequently withdrew to desolate places like the desert, often at night. So while our environment elicits plenty of side effects and and moments of tension over time, Christians especially here have leaned into instead of away from the solitude. None of the Christians here feel called to spend the rest of their lives in the desert. Antarctica is technically a desert with little precipitation. But it is impossible to deny the benefits of a season set apart. If anything, it would help to remove a few, if anything, it would help to remove a few more of the amenities here, at least if a goal of coming to Antarctica were fostering spiritual growth. In the modern non-Arctic Antarctic world. It can be difficult to find places to be alone. We are surrounded by real and virtual community throughout good portions of our days. When we do do need to set apart moments of meditation with our God, knowing how to handle stillness can be almost as challenging as finding it. Brad Badorf in Lord of the Night from Christianity Today. What a great article. What a great reality. And we do need to just sometimes get away and we'll realize, hey, God's closer than I thought he was. There's just so much noise, I haven't recognized him. I don't need to retreat from the battle, but I need a retreat in the battle. Or I need, yes, a retreat in the battle. Psalms 46, again, verse 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is a refuge for us. He is present with us, and he is also a refuge for us. We need to see God as that sen- in that sense that God is a refuge. He is a place of safety that we can retreat to in the midst of this war and that's my point and the big idea like i don't need to retreat from the battle i in the battle i need a place that i can go and i can retreat to that i can find a retreat in think of refuge as a place of retreat in the battle all around us think of refuge as a place of retreat i looked that up retreat in the cambridge online dictionary here's here's a definition a private and safe place a period of time used to pray and study quietly or to think carefully away from normal activities and duties and in the midst of the battle i don't need to not engage the the battle and run from the battle but i need to be able to go to a place of safety and security i need to be able to retreat and i think about this throughout the bible like i think about moses going up the mountain of god to be with god for 40 days to be recharged before he leads the israelites in the exodus i, I think of elijah who just battled 300 uh false prophets of baal and now he's he's running for his life from jezebel and it's crazy and it's like he's burned out and he makes it to the top of that mountain and here comes god in the still small quiet voice to refresh and recharge and encourage him i see jesus getting up early and going off into the desert into the mountains all alone to be with god for instruction uh, and uh 
and just to know what the day's events hold for him. And I see Jesus and Peter and James and John climbing the mountain for the great transfiguration that actually transformed Peter, James, and John spiritually. I see all of these, these moments of retreat. But you know one of the most fascinating places in the Bible where we see a retreat, we see like a, a great year-long sabbatical for the inhabitants of this, this circumstance or this, this, this uh, event. Do you know where that is in the Bible? You, you, want, you want to think where that might be? It's actually, I think, referred to in the text here in verses two and three. What does this describe? Whose stanza might this be? Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way through the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Who do you think that describes? How about Noah? I, I just wonder if Noah and, and the family, if they could have gone up to the top of the ark and looked out that window and they could have just watched all the inhabitants of earth be swallowed up by the sea to see all the mountains just crash into the ocean to watch it all just swallowed up in the storm. How surreal that would, that would have been. That would have literally been breathtaking for some of those people. Pun maybe intended there. But, but that's the reality. And you look here and you, you just think about they had a year on that ark. And after the rain stopped, after those 40 days, I mean, yeah, there were lots of animals. And the animals made their noise, I'm sure. But just think about what it was like. I'm, sh- I'm sure on that ark there were arguments and disagreements and frazzled emotions and frayed nerves, but still it's a big boat. And just think about what they have left behind, all the evil, all the sin, all the wickedness, all the noise, all the clamor of the earth. And for a year you're on this, you're on this ark. It's a year-long sabbatical to just get alone with God. You could all find your own little corner of the ark every day and what a quiet time that would be. And I have to think that in some way the peace of God enveloped that ark and carried them through those 365 days. We'll be here in a minute, but jump ahead to verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice and the earth melts. What a great picture. That is the world as Hezekiah and Isaiah saw it in their day. It also sounds like the world's in Noah's day. And it very much sounds like the world of today. And all God has to do is whisper a word or think a silent thought and his enemies can be brought to nothing. How great. What a, what a refuge that is. What a refuge that is. The application this morning is that when everything around us is crumbling, I can be at peace. When I, when, just, as, just as that ark represents us being in Christ, for all those on the ark, as everything around them crumbled and crashed into the sea, they could be at peace. And if we're in Christ, when everything around us is falling apart, when the world looks like it's falling apart, when we wonder if our world will survive, all that's being thrown at it today, we can be at peace. I look at the events of today, and I, I think there's like three or four camps. You, you have the people over here who think, okay, you know, the last election was stolen, and we're intentionally, they're trying to destroy our world. And then there's people in the middle who are like, that could be true, I don't know if it's true, maybe true, I'm not sure what to think. And there's people over here and think, well, you're a bunch of crazy conspiracy theorists. And I don't care where you stand or where you land on that issue today, as we watch everything going on and the agenda being pushed and the wickedness and the evilness and, and, and the destruction of the Judeo-Christian ethic in our world and all that's being thrown at us, we can have peace. We can just know that God is still in control. Whether it's all a crazy conspiracy or whether it's all absolutely true and there's someone out to destroy what we believe, 
has been our world forever. Doesn't matter. God is in control either way and we can be at peace. The refrain comes around again, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. And that, that idea of a refuge, think of like a fortress, like, like God is a fortress where we find refuge. What a great picture. Psalms 91 kind of refers to this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And I can be at peace when I am trusting God. But you know what else I notice in that refrain that really jumps out at me is this line right here. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. And that phrase, the God of Jacob, we see it elsewhere in Scripture, right? Like there's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's often used. And I wondered, what does that phrase mean? What can we learn from that simple phrase, the God of Jacob? What through this can communicate to us about the God who is present with us and who is a refuge for us? Well, we can learn three simple things real briefly here. Is he, he is a personal God. He's the God of Jacob. I mean, yeah, and I, I know Jacob represents all of the Jewish people, but he's the God of Jacob too. Like Jacob will individually wrestle with him. Like he has a personal world. He is the God of Jacob. He's the God of Rick and Luane and, and Donna and Ken and Helen and Raymond and Melissa and Jan and around the room. I could keep going. He's your God. He's my God. He's a personal God. He cares about the things we're going through. In fact, it even says back there in that phrase, right? The God of Jacob is our fortress. I can say the God of Jacob is my fortress this morning. And this is speaking back to Hezekiah. You know, it's fascinating with Hezekiah. Here again is what it says about Hezekiah. And the Lord was with him. Early on, this is his reputation. Wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Because he was so faithful to God, the Lord was with him. And still, I want you to watch something. The first time, the first threat, he goes into a, he, he takes that threat to, a, to Isaiah. And here's what he says. To Isaiah, it may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God. It may be the Lord your God. Like, I find that so odd. It's like, he's with you. He's with you, Hezekiah. Like, you don't have to run to Isaiah. You can just go to the Lord. But the Lord your God, maybe the Lord your God will intervene. Now, on his behalf, this could be his thinking. He could be looking at it. See, he knows his dad was an evil king, right? Like Hezekiah's dad was an evil king. And he, he may look at the nation and think, you know the judgment here we're getting? All the captivity we're t being taken? We deserve it. So like, yeah, he's not our God right now because you know we kind of deserve this. But Isaiah is a good prophet and he's like, maybe your God can help us out here. The second time that he gets threatened, they'll listen to what he says the second time. He goes into the temple and lays that letter out before God and he says, now, O Lord, our God, Rescue us from his power. What a great shift in his thinking. And I don't know what, the, what brought that shift on, but maybe he just realized, hey, I can appeal to God myself. God is my God. God is on my side. God is fighting for us. Maybe he got so desperate, he's like, I need to go to God directly. God is a personal God. He is a faithful God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the God of promise who kept his word. God made all kinds of promises to the Jewish people. He has kept those promises or he will keep those promises. That's why they should literally look one day for a kingdom where Christ will come down, sit on the throne and rule for a thousand years on the earth because that's not just a, like a, an abstract promise, an allegorical promise. That is a 
literal promise of a kingdom that's going to come, of a land that will be theirs, of a rule like no other. What an amazing, an amazing, an amazing reality that is. And then finally, he is the identity God. And I just thought about the God of Jacob, and I thought about Jacob's life for a minute, you know. When, when you think about the reality that we were all created in God's image, right? We were made in God, and then we fell, and then we, we, the, 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 the fall comes, and sin comes, and, and that image is tarnished, and we're broken, and we're at odds with God now. But if you remember the story of Jacob, he lived an exhausting life, didn't he? Like, like he, um, he tricked his brother, and deceived his father out of the family blessing. And then, fearing his brother, he runs off into another land for 14 years where he works for 14 years for the hand of Rachel in marriage and he's given, the, he's given Leah as kind of like a consolation prize. And he goes home with two wives and he goes home then to see his brother Esau all these years later with all this wealth he has accumulated and yet he's kind of afraid, like when I see my brother, what's going to happen? He kind of fears for his life. How will this go? And that is in in the context where that night he sleeps out under the stars and he wrestles with God all night long. He wrestles with God all night long and, and, and and it says that God didn't prevail over him. It's like kind of an odd thing, like how can God like not prevail over him? Well, there's more to that, and I'll tell you more about that later, but I just think it's fascinating that in the end of that, at the end of that night, that he is blessed by God. He gets the blessing that he truly wanted and he leaves that wrestling match with a lifelong limp, the blessings he always wanted and even more a significant name change and now Jacob is Israel and he will be the father of the 12 sons who will be the 12 tribes of Israel. And like his identity is, is I think finally for the, maybe the first time he leaves that wrestling match and he's like, my identity is in God. That's whose I am, that's who I am, and I can be at peace. I can be. He stopped deceiving his way through life that night and started trusting in God, and he found peace for his soul. So God is present with us, God is a refuge for us, and then notice that word strength. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, and here's the reality, God is a strength within us. He's a, he, he is present with us, He is a fortress for us and he is a strength within us. Do you know that? Do you understand that God is, right, he's the strength in the battle. You don't need to retreat from the battle. You need a retreat in the battle. That's what you need. And this is actually kind of elaborated on in verses four through seven. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Say love. You know, it's fascinating. So it talks about this reference to this river that runs through the city of God. There's a couple things that that Hezekiah did that were really significant. One thing he did was he went and and there's the springs that flowed all throughout the land of Judah. And I'm guessing that most of the inhabitants of Judah have been taken captive and are no longer in the land. So he goes and he stops up the springs. So the water is not flowing throughout Judah. And what does that do? That makes a hardship for Assyria's armies. Like they have no water source. Like, all the waters have been stopped up. Second thing he did, 
was he builds this pool or this kind of this conduit that, that actually diverted the spring waters into the heart of the city. You know, one of the things that, one of the tactics of war that they often uh, use, the first thing you do is try to cut off water supply and, and power supply and kind of kill the natural resources and just starve people out and just put them in a, where they can't even exist and they have to just surrender. And he made sure that didn't happen here. And so there's this water supply that's, that's flowing through. And it's fascinating here. There's some commentary here from the Enduring Word that, that, that is helpful. Throughout the Old Testament, prophets used the picture of a river as a powerful expression of richness, provision, and peace. He, he goes on in another comment. There is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God. The psalmist pictured the abundant, constant provision of a river for Jerusalem. The image is significant because Jerusalem does not in fact have such a river. Only a few small streams. Yet the prophets anticipated the day when a mighty river would flow from the temple itself. Where is this, where is this river going to come from if they don't have one? Revelations 22, 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And I'll tell you, that, that's going to be water. You drink that water, it's like, I ain't never tasted water like that before. And it's going to be, I, I can't even contemplate or really understand what this is like, this river of the water of life. And on the other side, there's the, there, there's, uh, if you read on, there's the tree of life there. It's just fascinating imagery. Don't even know exactly how to explain it. It's just beautiful. But this adds context, right, to what, Je- what did Jesus say in the book of John? Now, think about this. The river of life flows from the throne of God. There's a river of life flowing from the very throne of God when he rules. And remember what they said. They, they would equate, the, 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 they would equate, equate a, a river with, you know, peace. And, and what were those three words they said in there? I can't remember. But, but um, richness, provision, and peace. Is, is what they looked at these rivers as a powerful expression of. But think about what Jesus said, John uh, 14 to 4, to the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And what, what amazes me about that is God doesn't just give her a drink that like just satisfies her, quenches her thirst in the moment and, and, and is really satisfying is like, wow, I've never tasted that water before. God gives her an, an unending supply of abundant life, abundant water flowing out of her heart, heart, flowing out of her soul, flowing out of her existence so she never has to thirst again. It's what we read last week again, John 7, 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified and I think this verse it's a different dispensation but it applies to you and me we have the Holy Spirit we have an endless supply of the Holy Spirit of eternal abundant living water flowing out of our heart what was our last series all about the love the joy the peace the patience the kindness the goodness all of that it just flows out I'm filled from the inside out from my heart 
What a, what a beautiful, beautiful reality. Today, my heart is the holy habitation of God. We, we see this picture of this city here and, and, and the God is in the middle of this city. I'm telling you today, the imagery is you are that city and God is right here in the middle of you. All the power, all the strength, all the splendor, all the wonder, all the glory. You are a new creation. God has given you a new heart. God has taken up residency in you. You have an endless supply of all that God is. That's the reality. The river of abundant life flows from my very heart today. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful, beautiful imagery. What a beautiful thing. And note the contrast here as well. I don't think I put it on the screen. I didn't. Look at this contrast. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. Do you notice that? Contrast. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. All around, like, like Noah in the ark, all around, everything's falling into the sea. Everything is being shaken to its core. But those who are in Christ will not be moved. Oh, how amazing is that? One whisper from God can silence my enemy. Just one whisper. All I need to do is let God speak into my situation, speak into my circumstance. I don't need to retreat from the battle. I need to retreat in the battle. I just need to know Christ is my hope and my source and my strength. And here's the simple application. In the uncertainty around me, I can stand firm. And we're not going to go there at all this morning, but you can travel throughout the New Testament again at all the times. We talked about it earlier this year. We're called in the battle. What's our battle position? Stand firm. Stand in faith exactly what Christ did on the cross that's exactly what Christ did as he hung on the cross he stood firm on the cross and he was not moved and he defeated our greatest enemy we just need to know that God is stronger than our fears and our doubts and our anxiety and our enemies and our circumstances and anything we will face today. We do not need to be moved. Italy is peppered with tiny uh, mountain villages and Deso Discalve is one of the smallest. The picturesque river Deso runs right through the middle of this small village. On each side of the village is a row of attached houses as is common in the area. However, the row on the eastern side stands out as one of the houses is built on top of a massive boulder. The boulder projects out of the ground and the two houses on the left and the right of the boulder are actually built around its contour. The oldest record of Dezo del Scalve consists of a report compiled by a land surveyor in 1586 and it includes a drawing of the village. A prominent feature of the drawing is the same boulder surrounded by a cluster of houses. This means that the boulder has been an integral part of this village for more than 400 years. The large Gleno Dam was built above the village in 1923, but the project was immediately cursed by poor materials and poor workmanship. Sure enough, on December 1, 1923, the tragedy happened. The central section collapsed, causing a mass of over 1.1 billion gallons of water to flood into the valley below. Historical pictures of the town in the aftermath of the disaster show massive damage to roads, bridges, and the village itself that was almost completely washed away with 356 lives lost. However, among the few houses left standing are those that were constructed in and around the rock. What an awesome 
picture of our reality today. God is a present with us, a refuge for us, a strength within us. I don't need to retreat from the battle. I need a retreat in the battle. I need a place of retreat in the battle. Present with us, refuge for us, a strength within us. Look at here at the end then, the last lesson. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Selah. Last lesson, God is a ruler over us. He is a presence with us, a refuge for us, a strength within us, and he is a ruler over us us again we may we may look at the world and all the evil happening around us and be tempted to conclude god's not in control god's not in control of of what's going on but that would be a really sad conclusion to come to so far from the truth you know what's really amazing in here right like you look at the world you look at how you just have to go back in time and just say from the days of cain and abel the world has always been a place of of war like nation versus nation, it's been this way for 6,000 years. And here's the beautiful reality in this verse. You know what? I can't even kind of read that. I'll have to read it off my paper here. I didn't give a very good slide there. But the wars of this world will end when God ends them. The, war, the wars of this world will end when God decides to end them. Until then, there's always going to be war. We're never going to have... We're, ne- we're never going to get rid of poverty. We're never going to know world peace, all the elusive things we want. We're never going to know them until God says it's time. Because they can only come, they can only come through Yahweh. That's the, there is a world peace in none other than, Yah- than the Lord of lords and King of kings. And until he takes the throne, until he rules over this earth, th- those things will never, never be a reality. I'm not saying we shouldn't strive for peace today and that we shouldn't try to take care of poverty issues in the world. I'm just saying we're always going to struggle with those things until Christ is the ruler and the prince of peace has been put, or, or the prince of the power of this age has been put in his place. And this takes us to that climactic collusion, a conclusion of this, pas- of this passage. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And I wonder, how do you hear that? I think a lot of us hear that and we think of, well, yeah, I need a retreat. I, I need to go on a personal retreat. I need to get away like to the Antarctica. And I just, I just need to, to crowd all the noise out and just be still and hear God speak. And that's kind of what the verse is saying, but it's got a deeper meaning actually. There's a deeper meaning behind this phrase here that is really, really, really quite powerful. It's more than just getting away and slowing down and shutting out the noise and hearing the heartbeat of God. It's, it's so much deeper than that. This phrase tells us that we, as we engage this spiritual battle and as, as we refuse to back down, we need to remember to let God do the fighting. It reminds us of what we are told repeatedly in the New Testament again, to stand firm, to stand in faith, just as Jesus stood firm on the cross and trusted in the resurrection. The chief nemesis of this world will throw everything he can at us. We just need to stand firm and we need to know. This verse, 
is, is telling us, some translations, may I put it up here, here's, here's a few different translations. Desist and know that I am God. Stop striving and know that I am God. Stop fighting and know that, there's a sense that I don't need to retreat from the spiritual battle, but I need to know that God will fight the battle for me. And I, I don't back down from it, I engage it, I, re, I, 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 I find a place to retreat and, and I just learn to trust God and I, I stop striving and stop fighting on my own and I just learn to trust God in this battle. But there's another level too to this whole stop fighting and this, this, this sort of trusting. And we can find this in ourselves because sometimes we are fighting more than we are trusting. I am reminded again of Jacob who fought all night long with, who wrestled all night long with God, which always seems like a crazy thing. Like, why would, why would God fight all night long with Jacob? Why would it tell us that God could not prevail over Jacob before blessing him? I think the fact is, when you look at that story and you read through it, it's not real long, but the fact is God was fighting with Jacob because the fact is God was fighting with Jacob more than Jacob was fighting with God. God had been fighting with Jacob his whole life. Jacob was the great deceiver, the great manipulator, the hard worker, but he was never really good at the trusting thing. I think Jacob's wrestling match with God was really as much about Jacob wrestling with himself and coming to the point where he would find everything he wanted in God. You see, he wanted God to bless him, and yet God wanted Jacob to trust him and to stop fighting with him. And at the end of the night, he puts Jacob's uh, hip out of sink, you know, out, out of socket, and he kind of walks with a limp. But, but there, there came a point where I think Jacob came to the, the point of realizing, I need to stop fighting against God. I need to stop fighting against what God wants. I, I just need to trust Him. I think we all need to do that. Sometimes we get alone in our quiet times with God and, 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 and we get there and we're just arguing with God and fighting with God and, and, and we just need to say, I trust you, God. I recognize that you are God. Be still and know that I am God. The application, instead of arguing with God, I can worship Him. Like, get alone with God and don't just complain about all that's going on in your life and don't just argue about all that's going on and, and don't just, but, but just know that you can just worship God. And you can trust whatever's going on in your life and whatever He's allowing to go on in your life and you can trust Him to use that in your life. There's an interesting shift here from the third person. Do I think it would be the second person? I'm not very good at grammar, so I get this stuff confused all the time. But you know, the whole thing, if, if you look back at this psalm, and you look back at how this um, psalm is, is uh, written initially, back in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It's that way all the way through in the third person. And then here in this verse, be still and know that I am God. And the tense shifts here because it's to get our attention and to get us to realize we need to listen up here. Stop striving, stop fighting, stop arguing and just trust that I am God. You see, these were the words to Jacob, but these were also the words to Hezekiah. Like, Hezekiah, stop paying off your enemies. Stop looking to and aligning with other countries. Stop approaching me through Isaiah. Stop all your striving and worrying and know that I am God. They are God's words written to us. You see, Hezekiah's story is our story. Hezekiah's psalm is our psalm. And Hezekiah's God is our God. Let me leave you with this this morning.
the benefits of adversity. As German planes began bombing London in 1939, the British government had no doubt, no doubt societal breakdown would ensue. Civilians were not ready for the trauma and horrors to come. How would they cope with a complete change to life as they knew it? How would they respond to the nightly threat of injury or death? Would they riot, loot, experience mass-scale psychotic breaks, go on murderous rampages or lapse into total inertia as a result of exposure to German bombing campaigns? Some in the government featured, uh, feared three times as many psychiatric casualties as physical ones. Known as the Blitz, the bombing campaign killed over 60,000 civilians. But to the surprise of the government officials, the, the expected breakdowns never materialized. In fact, the Blitz achieved the opposite of what the attackers intended. The British people proved more resilient than anyone predicted. Morale remained high and there didn't appear to be an increase in mental health problems. Some people with long-standing mental health issues found themselves feeling better. People in British cities came together like never before to organize themselves at the community level. The sense of collective purpose this created led, to, led many to experience better mental health than they'd ever had. One indicator of this is that children who remained with their parents fared better than those evacuated to the safety of the countryside. The stress of the aerial bombardments didn't override the benefits of staying in their city communities. And the lesson for us is simple. Don't underestimate how much spiritual growth you can realize in the midst of the spiritual war if you don't retreat from the war, but if you find a retreat in the war and you turn to your Heavenly Father. Lord, thank you. We can trust you. Thank you that you're right here with us in everything that we're facing and each of us are processing life differently right now and we're, we're engaging the world at a, at a different level, a different mindset. We're interpreting things. We're going through our own personal experiences in our own homes, in our own lives. And Lord, through all of it, we can know that you are with us and we can trust you. That in the confusion around us, we can have peace that as everything around us is crumbling, we can stand firm. Yes, we can stand firm and we can stop arguing with you and we can just worship you and we can just trust that you are a good God and that we can grow stronger in the spiritual war, not weaker. Help us understand, give us the wisdom to know how to live in these tumultuous times. Give us the wisdom to have the right words to say to those around us, to respond with peace and serenity to exhibit the fruit of the spirit in trying times and lord help us just be very aware of your presence if if we need to retreat more than we are if we need to get alone away with you so we can crowd the noise out and we can become more aware of your presence let us know we need to do that and make yourself real to us lord i pray you'll bless everybody's week as they go home today as they leave this place, that you will just encompass them with your grace and your beauty and your splendor and your peace all week long. Bless them for having been here this morning. Be with those who are traveling today and couldn't be here and those that are out of town, whatever's going on. Take care of our church family, home and abroad. In Jesus' name, amen.